I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, Poem Talk has gone back on the road, this time to New York City, where we have convened at the Renee and Chaim Gross Foundation at 526 LaGuardia Place, not far from Washington Square in Manhattan, where I am delighted to be joined by three fabulous guest poem talkers who are Erica Kaufman, whose books of poems include Sensory Impulse and Instant Classic, and whose verse appears widely in periodicals, Rain Taxi, Verse, Contact, Boog City, and whose critical writings include essays on Joan Ritalik, Gertrude Stein, and Eileen Miles, and who, with others, has cooperatively led Belladonna Books and Reading Series, who is Associate Director at the Institute for Writing and Thinking at Bard College, and as such has collaborated with Julia Block and others to create a free and open teacher resource center as part of ModPo, the open online course, which is happening as we speak. And Gabriel Ojeda Segay, a Latino queer Leo living in Philadelphia, closely associated, I'm thrilled to say, with the Kelly Writers House community, whose first collection, Oil and Candle, forthcoming in January 2016, is a set of writings on, among other topics, the precarity of Latino-American lives, who is also the author of the chapbooks Jogs, which is a rewriting of The Joy of Gay Sex, and Night Chickadees, a collection of Cher's tweets on racism and violence. And Trace Peterson, a trans woman poet critic who is author of the book of poems Since I Moved In and is co-editor of Troubling the Line, Trans and Gender Queer Poetry and Poetics, the first ever anthology of poetry by trans writers, which was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in 2014. She serves on the board of directors of VITA, Women in Literary Arts, and is currently teaching the first ever course at Hunter College on transgender poetry. Gabe, nice to see you. Good to see Thanks you. Thanks for coming. It's so ironic. Your first time on Poem Talk, but you had to come to New York I know. to do it. That's so weird. Thank you for doing that. Trace, hello. Your first time on Poem Talk. I'm really happy about it. Hello, Al. I'm excited to be here. This is great. And first ever course mm-hmm. on transgender poetry. It's going well. It just started, I guess. Yeah. It's, um, we're starting to read some poems, and I'm, uh, there's more information coming about a website for the course and uh, readings happening coordinated with the course as well. Fantastic. So in the meantime, people could just do, um, they could uh, use in their favorite search engine, Hunter, Transgender Poetry, Trace Peterson, and finally find that. Can you name two poets that are just, you're excited about teaching? Oh, uh, Samuel Ace and Joy Layden, I would say, who are also going to be visiting the class. Oh, fantastic. That's great. And Erica, you came down from lovely Hudson Valley where the fall is fantastic. I did. Hi, Al. It's hey. nice to see you here in New York City. This is great. So we're here today to talk about C.A. Conrad's Somatic Poetics, and specifically a chapbook called Somatic Midge, which was published by Faux Press of Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2008. And even more specifically, two poems in that book. Each of the seven poems in the series was written under the physical influence, I'd say physical plus, we'll talk about that, influence of a color, and we'll talk about the green poem and the white poem. 
In 2007, Conrad walked into the Penn Sound Studios at the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at Penn, where Michael Hennessy recorded the whole series. And that is the recording we'll listen to before we talk. So here now, performing Say It with Green Paint for the Comfort and Healing of Their Wounds and From the Womb, Not the Anus, White Asbestos Snowfall on 9-11 is C.A. Conrad. Say it with green paint for the comfort and healing of their wounds. Written after eating only green foods for a day, while under the influence of green nail polish on my middle fingers. Not until we're all protected, he said. Not until we're all unprotected, I said. Descent of magnets we come to bank ourselves against. The tomb radiates life without pause. Yes, that's your insurance agent, overhead, in first class. Cash webs form, water sends instinct home. A switch inside the queen's body stops producing workers to send out a queen. The babysitter of empire wants a raise. Right on walls, right on courthouse sidewalks, right on every single mirror you can find. I make holes in Iraqi families every time I pay my taxes. All these centuries later, the occupation still unwittingly shapes the resistance. Eruptions at night we only hear to know. Burying dead batteries under the green flag of the desert. It's all quite stunning sealed under reactions. Everybody needs a lover in wartime. Fuck for the dead. Fuck and love fucking for the dead. After the latest body count, fuck and fuck and fuck the prayer of fucking. Run onto the street screaming death down. Terrible vacancies for either hand. Settle into missing time, flat on the grass, smoking hash until the butterfly. Hyperapathy? I'm telling you this only once. You're outside your jurisdiction. From the womb, not the anus, white asbestos snowfall on 9-11. Written after eating only white foods for a day, while under the influence of 108 written on my forehead with fresh semen. It's a dog, my heart. My war hair gets the dead tangled express message sent to meet the approaching fist. Wince, but do not burn away. From more than one thing and more than one day, apathy. Break from room where electricity hums for years. Retrieve mind from socket and tingly crotch that created this world. Does having the ear of angels impress? But I would rather speak to you. Dear Admiral White Pants, thanks for the field guide to extinct animals. You make me the belly who birds push through at last. The rich can hire a dominatrix. My mother could only afford to marry badly. Everything you know and do not know can be yanked apart no matter who you can afford. Post-traumatic stress, the grass, bleeding chlorophyll. Do you like your fluids to travel together? 
Tell me, please, about the calm you seek when war is over. My uncle sneered to say, what a horrible soldier you would make. Nicest thing anyone's ever said of me. A dove lands, but I say nothing. No spell broken. So I don't want to necessarily go in order, but why don't we roughly talk more about green first and then roughly talk more about white second. So who wants to say anything to get us started about green? Erica, first thought about green, the green poem? I mean, the beginning to me is awesome. Like beginning with the repetition of protected countered by unprotected. Let's talk about that. So protected has, because insurance comes in later, there's a certain connotation, but there's also possibly a sexual connotation. Well, I think of protected as having these connotations of security, but in a much more violent way, where some kind of arming and being protected and being totally constructed and ready for anything is actually just more of a violent proposition. It's one where there is no connecting to the things around you. There's like kind of a barrier between you. Trace, do you want to go further with this? Is um, How do we connect this dialogue with insurance or go anywhere with it, please? Um, well, what I notice about this exchange that starts out the poem is that it's kind of a thing that's structuring um, actually a lot of these poems um, is that there's a constant creation of an addressee who is um, sort of oppressive um, and responding to that provocation continually. So there's a sort of dynamic of speaking truth to power going on that I see a lot in Conrad's poetry and um, the sort of snarling, um, sneering, sarcastic, often flamboyantly funny response uh, to that is a lot of the subject matter that I sort of get drawn into when I read something like this. Um, and I think there's, there's a passage in here that sort of sums up that relationship for me. All these centuries later, the occupation still unwittingly shapes the resistance. So there's something about the relationship between the occupation and the resistance there that is like the relationship between the, the speaker or implied speaker that's always evoked and then responded to in a lot of Conrad's work. Terrific. And occupation, of course, not just in the context of the passage about the Iraq, Iraqi families, but in the context of all these poems, they're, they're all, to some degree, whatever else they are, they're all anti-war poems. So I guess the general question, Erica, I would have about these, this, at least these two in the series is, how do we relate the experiment of a poet working under the influence, writing poems under the influence of a color, including ingesting food only of that color, or in the case of the white poem, smearing semen, which is white, on the forehead. I had to explain that semen was white. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then operating under the influence of that color. What could that possibly do with the anti-war sentiment here? How do those connect? Big question. What I, what I think about when I think about these poems and when I think about Conrad's somatic work in general is he's really committed to ways of fully engaging his entire body in his poetics. And, you know, what, what is going on in a lot of these poems and what's going on when we're at war, as we seem to be all the time, is that bodies are being destroyed, bodies are being put in danger, and bodies are being manipulated. So I think that 
part of what's wonderful about setting these physical constraints on himself is that he's putting his own body through various experiments as a way to generate language to engage with the things that he is physically living through and thinking through. So, Gabe, when we look at an instance of this attitude of, the, of what Trace describes as one, the resistant character, who is funny and outrageous and, and you know, political, and we get to the, in the Green Poem, we get to the uh, everybody needs a lover in wartime passage. What do you, what do you make of that as a, a possible anti-war strategy? Something that struck me there, which I think is related to what Erica was just saying also, is what's next to, um, in that passage, you have body count and you have literally fucking. And I feel like that juxtaposition is important. And when I think of what Erica's saying about the somatics as an anti-war resistance, I also think about how I think, I think Conrad would view war as also a destruction of environments as well as of lived lives and of bodies there and so much of the somatic is about connecting the body to the environment really feeling what is around you and not being able to subjugate it because you understand that it's one and the same so fucking has this really um kind of celebratory reasoning here and then when you have the body count as well i think it kind of really viscerally gives out um a way of seeing the horror of what you're doing so in the fucking passage, is it too simplistic to say that this is an, a Conradian version of make love, not war? I mean, in the somatic context, um, fucking is a reminder of the primacy of the body and consciousness about the body. And in this whole work, the consciousness about the body is generally a hedge against environmental and other kinds of destruction. I was just leading up to that question. I'll just quote from the preface of this book. I cannot stress enough how much this mechanistic world, as it becomes more and more efficient, resulting in ever-increasing brutality, has required me to find my body. Mm -hmm. What would you do with that in the context of lovemaking? Well, I, I, I think it's, there's also the, the fact that it's the queer body. So I, I think that to a certain extent in a passage like this, it's not, it goes beyond the idea of make love, not war, although I'm, I'm sure that that's part of it. But I also think that, you know, there's the body count embedded in that stanza, AIDS. You know, there, there are just a lot of, for me, it just feels so viscerally intense because I, he's speaking of fucking, but he's speaking of queer fucking. And the prayer of fucking. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess one of the sort of implied um, comparisons there might be maybe building off of what Erica said, that our dead are just as important as your dead, and the Iraqi dead are just as important as as your dead. It's sort of like what Simone Ve says about the Iliad and the poem of force, is that violence is done to the person who commits it, as well as the person who's the victim of it. So that there's this there's this way in which he's saying we are in a certain way like the Iraqis who are being killed in the war. So occupation becomes extremely powerful and mobile, a term. Does anybody want to talk more about occupation? I mean, I'll just, obviously, um, poets, radical poets as early as Emily Dickinson used occupation multiply. 
And in this case, the great experiment, I really admire this experiment that Conrad did here, which is to ingest, put yourself under the influence of a, what people would say a, is a sort of symbolic aura in order to constrain yourself, but then remind yourself constantly that, you, that, the, that the writer is a body. I think of I think the main way I think of Conrad's writing, especially the anti-war stuff, is like what Trey said earlier, speaking truth to power. But it's a specific direction where it's somebody who's in the power sphere speaking truth to that power. It's not it's not always um, the victim of a colonial occupation in the same way. It's it's kind of the white inter resistance. I'm white. I live in this country. I will resist from that position. Not. I am the victim of this country's literal violence all the time, but I can work from inside. And I think that takes a turn on the occupation there, where there is a literal occupation of Iraq in this case, as well as an occupation of American bodies through mechanization, through efficiency, which I guess I would put in quotes, and through separating the body from the environment, which I think Conrad would view as a symptom of factory work of that kind of industrial contemporary American violent position. So your comment really makes me think that it's a great choice to end with white. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get to white, can we look at the end of green? I like that I'm telling you this only once because it's kind of like the way this is somebody who is not so empowered in the scheme of things. So, um, and speaking to, um, oppressive forces in our society here hyperapathy and part of what's happening is that it's sort of this arrogation of authority to the self where um you know i don't care if i'm marginalized i'm going to talk like someone who is has authority the authority and the power in this situation and i also see it here where he says right on walls right on courthouse sidewalks right on every single mirror you can find i make holes in iraqi families every time i pay my taxes which it, it reminds me of like what you would have a school child right on the board when they did something wrong yes yeah, some <laughs> radical obverse of that yeah that's very cool Right on walls, right on courthouse sidewalks, right on every single mirror you can find. I make holes in Iraqi families every time I pay my taxes. All these centuries later, the occupation still unwittingly shapes the resistance. Eruptions at night we only hear to know. Can we say, before we move to white, can we just say one more thing about the whole project of eating and being? What, what, is, what is Conrad seeking to, you know, he says this in his, in his postscript, talking about the uh, origins, etymology of soma, uh, and then saying my idea for somatic poetics is a project which investigates that seemingly infinite space between body and spirit by using nearly any possible thing, all caps, around or of the body to channel the body out. One of the things I find really interesting about it is the timing implied in the preface where he says, um, the most idle looking pebble will suddenly match any hunger, any rage, suddenly, and will be realized at no other speed than suddenly. Partly that feels to me like it's saying, the things that you're using, these ingredients, this, these parts of the world are more powerful than you are and are going to really take you aback. 
Um, and part of it also I feel is um, not just the power of it, but that there is just a huge radical shift that after what it's like a, you go into it and you'd never come back. <laughs> and I think when you do the somatics, because they're kind of meant to be done by others as well, I think you feel that. Have you, Erica, have you participated in any of the somatic workshops? I've participated in a couple of his workshops. He and I have also done, I think, two or three somatics together. Meaning led them. Um, so, Co-led them. Yeah, we created the procedure together in conversation. and then You're the co-author of the procedure. Hmm? That's yeah. cool. Those writing experiences for me were completely changed the way that I thought about writing. Can you make a hyperbolic claim for somatic poetics? In other words, give us your best take on what I what in some kind of utopian situation this could do for us. The body of the poet, the anti-war poet, the queer poet, what is the claim? I think that the claim is that when when we think about a somatic poetics Basically, you're pushing your writing practice to the furthest possible limit where it's literally impossible for you to write the same poem twice. You're engaging every single part of who you are as a human being, but you're also engaging the environment and the larger world around you. And that stuff changes every minute of every day. And if a detractor came along and said, oh, this is hocus-pocus, mystical, irrational, poetic stuff, we could say, well, aren't you affected by the fact that you ate three Big Macs and you try to sit down to write a poem? That's definitely going to... You know, the world that made a Big Mac, I'm glad I thought of that improvisationally, because the world that made the Big Mac is going to shape the poem that you write because of the way you feel. I mean, it's been a long time since I ate a fast food hamburger, but it makes me feel terrible. And I'm going to... So this is really just pushing that body consciousness to the to a limit a very self-conscious limit definitely and to sort of push it back in the other direction i would say one of the things that this falls into for me is a long history of sort of occasional poetry poetry written by like on the occasion of looking into chapman's homer is right. that yeah. yeah so the, the this is sort of like poems that are provoked by is it sort of like a new version or a new twist on poems that are that come out of an an experience like this just happened today or yeah something. so i mean we could push this and say that if, if one could theoretically say that all poetry is occasional you know whether you concede it or not this is in that spectrum it's just pushing consciousness to an extreme so to follow trace's lead here so now we have a poem that is instigated by smearing semen on your forehead, uh, spelling out 108, which somebody's ha- going to have to explain to me, or maybe it's random, maybe thinking about the, uh, the, the flakes of dead, 9-11 dead, maybe. Um, that's the occasion, and eating a lot of white, which is either colorless or, as Gabe was suggesting before, is the core of the political problem. So shall we say anything about the, the poem and get started anywhere? Well, on the title... Um, I think this is in one of the recordings we have on Pensan. He tells us a story of why it's called White Asbestos Snowfall, which the story is there was an interview on TV after 9-11, I mean, maybe like the day after, something like that, uh, where an engineer from the building was talking about um, the building's collapse. And somebody, the news reporter asked, what is all this white flakes that we're seeing in the air? And he goes, oh, that's asbestos. And... There was kind of like a little panic moment and um, they eventually 
either cut or corrected in some way. They said, no, no, he was wrong. Actually, it's not asbestos because people would freak out if their air was full of asbestos. That anecdote, I feel like, gives a lot of perspective on what's going on here and the terror of this being in the air, totally just viral in the air. Um, and you breathe in part of a building, part of a war, um, some kind of violence on the national front. So how about um, sound? Let me ask you about sound. We have um, the electric hum of a room that the speaker somewhat escapes from. Uh, years and years of the hum of that. Then we have uh, a socket that's reminding us of the electricity. And that uh, suggests a certain tingly sexual feeling. and ting- So tingly crotch... Uh, which carries forward the idea of sound feeling. And then finally, this beautiful Ginsbergian, I take to be a Ginsbergian stanza question, does having the ear of angels impress? And there the ear is sound. So does anyone want to pick up on this little sub-theme here, say anything about that? Gabe, what do you think? Well, Conrad talks a lot about the poet as a position of resistance and that connection. I mean, I think the Ginsberg connection is right for the, for the word angels there. I think the ear is already something that's so associated with poetics. So I think partly it's a question of what the poet can do. Conrad has said, um, in a lot of readings, like I want to make everybody a poet as many people as I can and get people to stop, stop writing. Um, because so many people do. And when impress, I don't think of it as impress as like, oh, I think that's really great. You just impressed me. But make an impression on something. Can it make a physical manifest Which goes back to somatic poetics because it's all about impressions being physical. Right. And how about this next gorgeous mini stanza? But But I would rather speak to you. There is carrying forward the sound of voice. Erica? The you is... um in that moment, it's all encompassing, but it's followed up by dear admirable, yeah. admiral white pants. Thanks for the field guide to extinct animals. So just when we thought that the U is this lovely utopian readership, it turns out to be one of the detractors. Right, and then and then you evolve into a moment where there are a lot of birds in this poem. And yeah, there are a lot of animals, and then so you you get the extinct animals. In this comment to Admiral Admiral White Pants, then you get the birds who push through at last. Dear Admiral White Pants, thanks for the field guide to extinct animals. You make me the belly who birds push through at last. That moment with the birds is just really kind of fascinating to me. Because it's like it's like this really confounding metaphor, and it's this way of positioning the body. So it's this vessel, I guess, but it's being forced into that role. It's very strange. It it sort of seems to, seems like spatially confounding and logically confounding, and you can't help superimpose the anus thing onto it. So mm. there's like this image of somebody pooping birds, which is really pooping disturbing. or birthing birds right. in an odd way, such that Admiral Whitepants would probably be a little appalled. You make me the belly who birds push through at last. The agency is backwards. You're right. It's, it's surrealistic. And then one of these great little Conradian moments where I've used Conradian twice, I guess it's official. <laughs> there's um, a lot of Conradian moments here. Yeah. yeah. And there's this Conradian moment where again, the family Conrad's family, which is often a comic foil in his anecdotes, but 
often a, a, a reminder that he comes from a dysfunctional ancestry that made him what he is. So it's, become, it's humorous, but also very powerful and resistant. The rich can hire a dominatrix. My mother, so you get this wonderful little classic poetic reversal, almost like a beat poet doing a humorous reversal. The rich can have a dominatrix. My mother could only afford to marry badly. So how does that conclude this section on birthing birds through the anus or whatever, if it does? Gabe? There keeps being this like, and in the, in the green poem as well, this comedy of personal property, it happens in so many ways. There's the insurance agent in green. There's this hiring of a dominatrix. Um, and there's other examples, but I can't bring them up right now. Just the idea of not only buying a person, but buying somebody to have power over you. And then that kind of is echoed again in marrying badly. I think there's a way in which property and the purchasing of things comes as maybe a funny, but also kind of nightmarish. Um, thing in this environment, this war environment. And domination, which is the equivalent in his family of marrying badly, which is a really sad, violent image of dysfunction, um, connects with occupation. It's a kind of domestic occupation that's in your lineage. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, I, yeah, I please, Trace. One sort of follow up to that. Um, this moment, I really like this moment right after that where my uncle sneered to say what a horrible soldier you would make. And this, um, to me, is connected to something I've heard Conrad talk about a lot, about sort of resisting the idea that it's progress to have queer people in the military. This is sort of a personal issue for me as well right now, because I think a lot of the trans-pop movement that's going on at the moment in the culture with Caitlyn Jenner and everything else is very... Um, uh, removed from most people's experiences and um, to say the least yeah and and I would say that some of this is prompted by the military investing in research into trans people so there's a kind of interesting thing happening here where um, this idea of um, you were you were talking earlier about this hyperapathy who is hype what is hyperapathy um, that's being addressed in this other poem. I think it's probably, I think hyperapathy might be the drag name for the military industrial complex's attempts at diversity. Wow. <laughs> so let's, that's great. We're, that's since brilliant. We're, since, that's really great. Um, since we're getting with that fabulous comment toward the dove at the end, and it's a good way for us to end our specific comments here. Let's, let's say one more thing about that scene with the uncle. So Trace suggests that this is a really powerful story about the American military when inclusion becomes further impression. So resistance, he's reversing something. Um, and then we get peace, or at least a glimpse of peace, a dove landing. So, and this is a traditional, said with great happiness, really, without any sneering, traditional poetic conclusion the end of Wallace Stevens Sunday morning there are birds descending you know on unextended wings there's something really 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 beautiful about the dove landing after such agonizing war poems but this is obviously pretty complicated any thoughts yeah to start well a dove has this connotation of peace in other 
cultures and in a lot of even like other spiritualities, it has a connotation of death as well. I think partly it's this like really promising offering and the lands there also feels to me, not just like a physical landing, but it feels like when you say a joke lands, like it's like a dove works or peace works, I guess. And there's that, maybe this is, no, this is probably actually a good thing to mention because there's that Anthony and the Johnsons song called One Dove, which I know Conrad likes Anthony and the Johnsons. That's why I bring it up. Um, and it's the line is One Dove to bring me some peace. And I feel like Anthony Hegarty works at the, from the same position as Conrad, actually. Um, a lot of anti-war stuff, a lot of um, pro-environmental preservation stuff, uh, also uh, trans person. And... That feels very similar here. It's a really promising offering. And that, but that butt really kind of, I don't know. That, I don't know what to do with the butt there. Anybody want to pick up on but I say nothing? Erica? I think what we have here is a moment where you can see how pristinely crafted Conrad's stanzas are. This, I mean, this would just read so differently if the line breaks were different and if you know, if, if certain words weren't edited out, like if it was a dove lands on one line instead of the break after a dove lands, but I say nothing, which is indented, so then stands in contrast as this assertion in between a dove lands, but, mm -hmm. and then no spell broken, there's no verb. Right, so it's, you know, we don't know if the spell is broken. We don't know if the world of the, that the poem is orbiting in is broken. Or the spell of being under the influence of the color you've been ingesting all day, and here it is at the end of the sequence. Right. And it's also interesting because there's a lot of, as you were saying earlier, Al, there are all of these moments where we're talking, literally. There's, um, I would rather speak to you, tell me please. Mm-hmm. And then you get, I say nothing. All right, so we could talk forever about this happily, it seems. Why don't we go around and each one of us say one more thing about either of the poems or about the project or about som somatic poetics generally. And I'm looking around to see who would like to speak first. Gabe, you got it. Um, one of the stanzas we didn't talk about in green that I wanted to mention is this one that reads, Eruptions at night we only hear to know. That distance of that echo of sound that you can only hear to know it's happening um, makes me think that these poems are written specifically from the perspective of resistance from the home front. Um, you are not in that land. Uh, and so if we think of resistance from the home front, I think there's a call to action for Americans, for resistance against American work, American violence, American imperialism. And that echo is so important, I think. That eruption that you only hear to know maps onto the sounds that you're talking about in white also. That's all I wanted to say. Great. Trace, final thought? Well, um, <clears throat> I want to go back to the poetic statement at the beginning. Um, I particularly like the way he's setting out some of these terms here because I think it disrupts some of the traditional um, divisions between sort of mechanistic and anti-mechanistic and um, the sort of position that would 
repudiate technology as being bad always. Because I think what he does is really interesting. He says, there's a mechanistic world that he's responding to. The solution is to find my body, find my planet. But then in the next sentence, um, it gets cooler because he says, if I am an extension of this world, then I am an extension of garbage, shit, pesticides, bombed and smoldering cities, microchips, cyber astral and biological pollution, but also, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this awareness of um, being the pollution or the product of um, technology, the product of industrial work that are not so favorable and um, ingesting and becoming those things, um, sort of like, like the sort of long poetic tradition of kind of like letting something disturbing and dark speak through you, letting Cain in. Um, and to me, that's sort of very interesting. It's like a way of inoculating yourself against what you're fighting. Mm, terrific. Thank you. Erica, final thought? To, to follow up on what Trace just said, I was thinking about the last sentence of that same statement, suddenly and will be realized at no other speed than suddenly. And this, you know, this declaration of within the practice of somatics, one has to learn how to actually live with and acknowledge the suddenly, right? And the fact that you can't be, you don't know what's going to happen, but you can be prepared to resist. That's great. I guess my final word is the simplest thing I could think of. Um, the uh, personal is the political idea, which is very hackneyed from the new left. The idea that uh, when John and Yoko you know, held a press conference while they were in bed to announce that the war was ended, had been ended, implying make love, not war. That's we're going to stay in bed and do this, which was much mocked by the ultra left. Actually, it was much mocked by all part, parties of the left. Um, but it was a kind of um, be- Beatlesified fluxus thing. <laughs> <laughs> but so there are moments here. Everybody needs a lover in wartime. Fuck for the dead. Fucking love fucking. That, that, that sort of gets into that tradition. It's a tradition I admire, by the way. Um, and then all, in all caps, I make holes in Iraqi families every time I pay my taxes, which as someone here has pointed out is an instance of the scrawling on the walls that you might do. And the, and the way Conrad gets out of any possible political cliche is to say that very slowly in the reading. And I think that works to de-clicheify it. But I still want to abide by the cliche. I still think it's important to be reminded in the middle or here toward the end of a a series of somatic poems, poems coming from a body under the influence, consciously under the influence, that what I do daily, what I ingest, or as Trace is suggesting, what I choose to surround myself with, whether it's pollution and shit or a clean patch of land or a piece of dirt from Auschwitz or whatever it is, that says who I am and who I am says what I say and my language takes a position. And if I don't do these things, I participate in hyperapathy and Iraqi families get holes shot through them. And there is a connection and it's worth saying it. Mm-hmm. Political poetry says that. And, you know, even the most, you know, I'm a big fan of Adrian Rich's personal as the political poetry, but some of it is very easy. And I think, I'm not accusing this of being easy at all, but there are moments where the political easiness is exactly what I think we need at certain points. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for several of us, or all three of you, if you're quick, 
to spread wide your narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And I see Trace is still thinking of her gathering paradise, so I'll go with Erica. Got a suggestion? These poems were Conrad's first investigation into somatics, so I would definitely say for all listeners to check out Beautiful Marsupial Afternoon and Eco Deviance, his two larger books of somatic poetry from Wave Books. I, I would also quickly say two new super wonderful artist and poet collaborative books from Litmus Press, Actualities by Norma Cole and Marina Adams and Fabulous Femine by Susan B. and Johanna Drucker. Super gorgeous, fabulous books. That was four. You gathered some real paradise there. That's great. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, that last one. Gabe? Yeah, I've got one. Um, one of the best new books that I've read is Tender Points by Amy Berkowitz. Um, it's prose poems about fibromyalgia, pain, and sexual assault. And it's really, really good. It's like really good. <laughs> That's great. Trace, gather some paradise. Are you ready to gather some paradise for us? I am, Al. Um, so first of all, the, the uh, second printing of Troubling the Line is uh, coming out this year because the first printing sold out. And so it's available. Which is fabulous. For, thank you. I, I'm here that it's being taught in a lot of classrooms um, and it's making a big difference and it makes me really happy. Um, I think um, there's, there's so many exciting new books by trans poets coming out this year. Um, uh, I would say since the book was published, something like... Um, 14 to 20 new or uh, new books most of them first books by trans poets are are now out there so is it possible that editors and publishers having seen them in the anthology are beginning to reach out to these poets exactly so this is a point i said that because you're too modest to say that the anthology is itself generating the possibilities of publication exactly and i'm very i mean i should mention should have mentioned this at the beginning but i'm really pleased that conrad is involved in the anthology i mean um, I'm, I'm really honored that he's a part of this. And also he's introduced me to several people whose writing probably wouldn't have been in the anthology otherwise. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to, um, two new anthologies, which I think are, are really exciting, which just came out. One of them is Writing the Walls Down, co-edited by Amir Rabaya, who's one of the authors in Troubling the Line. And, um, I think it's really, a really excellent LGBTQ, um, anthology and it has a generous inclusion of trans folks. Um, the other thing I want to mention is an issue of um, a magazine called Cream City Review edited by Chingin Chen, um, which is a, a genre queer folio of writing which tries to come up with connections between identity poetics and formal genre characteristics of of text. And one last thing, I wanted to announce that IAG is publishing two new books this year um, that are going to be important for trans poetry. One of them is a book called The Criminal by Max Wolf Valerio, who is an important pioneer in trans poetics, uh, is a trans, uh, trans man. And uh, a new book by Carrie Edwards, which is a previously unpublished posthumous volume called Succubus in My Pocket, which I'm also very excited about. Fantastic. That was great. Well, my um, gathering paradise is our Gabriel Ojeda Sagay. I just, <laughs> I, really, I'm your paradise. 
I just want to, I want Poem Talk listeners to just keep an eye out in the next couple of years of what this remarkable young poet is doing. And he's blushing and smiling. No, I think it's great. <laughs> and this is a great way to celebrate the fact that you joined us in New York for your first of, I hope, many Poem Talks. Glad to be here. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, that's all the Admiral White Pants we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Erica Kaufman, Trace Peterson, and Gabriel ojeda Segay, the aforementioned, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, who traveled all the way from Philadelphia to help us. And to Poem Talk's editor, the very same, Zach Cardner. And many thanks to all the generous, supportive people at the Renee and Chaim Gross Foundation, especially Susan Fisher and Mimi Gross. If listeners to Poem Talk haven't visited the Gross Foundation, let me say that I urge you to come here to 526 LaGuardia Place when you are in New York next. You can find more information at rcgrossfoundation.org. Next time on Poem Talk, back in Philly, I'll be hanging around with Rodrigo Toscano, Michelle Taransky, and Lainey Brown, and we'll be talking about Rob Fitterman's project called Sprawl. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>